Um, down through history, people have come to believe the gospel. They have come to put their faith in Christ. Uh, fundamentally, I think, for two reasons. Uh, one is um, that the Bible makes sense. For instance, if you look in the book of Acts, all of the Apostle Paul's sermons could be summarised in three words. Jesus makes sense. Jesus makes sense to Jews as the fulfilment of all of their their hopes of uh, history. He makes sense to uh, Greek philosophers in Athens as the fulfilment of all their philosophical musings. He makes sense to um, farmers out in the countryside in, uh, uh, in Lystra as the, 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 um, uh, the fulfilment of their inklings about God that they've got from their agricultural lives. Jesus makes sense. And down through history, te- teachers have always needed to explain the Bible and shown how Jesus, how the message of the Bible makes sense in that world. And then people follow Jesus. But there is another reason why people become followers of Jesus. That is very important and perhaps we um, overlook it. Second reason is that the Bible works. Yeah, Following Jesus works. Believing the Gospel works. Living life according to the Bible works. In the Old Testament, the that the purpose of the nation of Israel was that they should be a community that worked, that functioned well, and so they would display to the nations the glory of God, and the nations would say, come, let's follow that God. Or uh, in the New Testament, the church is to be a community of people that works, that functions well and properly. By this will all men know that you're my disciples, that you love one another, said Jesus. Or or Peter says, live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Be a community that works because then people will put their faith in Jesus, says the New Testament. And down through history, Christianity has actually won its victories in, in, in different eras in history, in different parts of the world, because it demonstrated that the, the Christian way of life works, it's healthy. In the first four centuries of the church's life, for instance, Christi- Christianity rose from being a, a persecuted minor sect to being the dominant force in the Roman Empire. And uh, a major reason for that was that people were just persuaded it works. Actually, after it had become dominant, a later Roman emperor called Julian tried to take Rome back to its pagan roots. And uh, he uh, wrote to uh, um, uh, pagan priests throughout the empire, saying they got to outdo the Christians because, he said, it is the, quotes, moral character of the Christians that makes people follow them. 
They not, the Christians not only looked after their own, they looked after everyone else in local communities. So he complains, they support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us, said Julian. And the gospel thrived in the first four centuries because people just knew and saw it works. And so that has been down through the centuries. Just in, in the 19th century, for instance, it was the, 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 uh, the growth of vibrant evangelical Christianity was partly because it had won such respect in the, in the uh, early and middle part of that century. William Wilberforce, remember, an evangelical Christian leading the way in the abolition of slavery or just a little later, Lord Shaftesbury leading the way in, uh, in, in factories acts and, uh, and legislation to protect children. A movement of that kind of character is unstoppable. If people are persuaded that Christianity makes sense and it works, they follow Jesus. And my aim in this series on the, on the Bible and politics has been in a, in a very, very small way to try to show you how our nation may once again be persuaded by the truths of the Bible, persuaded that they not only make sense, but they work. And I, I, I know um, for all of us it's been, been, been a stretch. It's felt like, to be honest, being an ancient explorer sailing a vast ocean and occasionally touching great continents, having a little look at the, uh, the coastline and then, uh, uh, and then moving on. We, we've not be almost begun to scratch the surface of the issues that the Bible actually addresses in our modern world. But I hope a few things have caught your imagination. I hope you were persuaded at the beginning that actually it's all Christians' responsibility to be concerned for politics. If we don't con con care about our fellow citizens... We are as loveless as the Pharisees. We are like those people who pass by on the other side of the road in the story of the, the Good Samaritan. If we don't vote, we are dishonouring government and the Bible says it is the sin to dishonour your government. I hope you were persuaded that the, that, 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 that the Bible teaches us how to live in a fallen world where there are lots of people who do not follow Christ. Not by constantly fighting our own corner, but by working for the common good, even of those who are not followers of Jesus Christ. By advocating policies that, that, that allow a mixed society to function. Some people call it principled pluralism today. I hope that you are persuaded that the Bible says we should be responsible about, about the environment. I hope you were persuaded that, that notwithstanding that Bill Clinton's uh, um, little phrase, the economy's stupid, money is not the answer to all our problems. Indeed, the present way that financial systems are working and the present way in which 
there's a reflex just to throw money at issues is in part part of the the, the problem that we um, problem that we live today. Jesus was absolutely clear: if you worship money, it will enslave you. I hope you were persuaded as we looked at the family that not only healthy families, but healthy communities, healthy churches, healthy what uh, some people call mediating institutions is what our country desperately needs in order to function well. Because a state on its own simply cannot look after people as they need to be looked after. It takes a village to raise a child. hope you've been persuaded as we sort of sailed around and looked at these different issues that actually scripture sets out a a broad, a grand uh, a healthy vision for society that Christians need to grasp and advocate and live out It is through reading their Bibles that millions and millions of Christians have lived out their lives in the real world, loving their neighbours as themselves, loving their enemies, modelling what a good life is all about and in the process of bringing glory to Jesus. And we can be part of that story. For the last hundred years or so in this country, at least in, in some ways, Christianity has been more or less in retreat and there are many reasons for that, but one of the reasons, it seems to me, is that actually a secular vision for society seems so attractive. But actually, as the 20th century wore on and now we're in the 21st century, we're starting to see some holes in that particularly in the way that the family has disintegrated and caused a rising tide of problems in society. And it is a moment, it seems to me, by moment I don't mean just this year, but perhaps the next few decades, when people will be looking around for some different way to live our lives and most of you here are young enough that you will have an opportunity to model that and witness to that for decades to come. That is our calling. So, at the end of the series, as we came to look at this issue of Bible, of the Bible and justice, I have to say, in, originally I had in my mind that we, we would spend some time talking about what the Bible has to say about the criminal justice system because um, that, like uh, many other um, uh, things in society, is uh, in trouble. Um, prisoner numbers are at an all-time high at the moment. They've risen 66% in the last 15 years. Um, the only solution proposed is more prisons. Um, one uh, source I read suggested that the building programme for prisons is bigger than the building programme for the Olympics. Um, uh, but actually, prisons seem to be increasingly encouraging re-offending so that uh, the reoffending rate in 1993 from prisoners was 
53%. By 2004, it's risen to 65%. We have some problems here. Um, overall, crime, crime is not rising at a, at a great level. Those things are difficult to measure. But violent crime has been rising steadily for the last 50 years. Interestingly, the long-term history of violent crime has been plotted. It's always dipped when vibrant Christianity has been uh, um, uh, really functioning in Britain. And it's always risen when godlessness has been on the rise. But we're not going to talk about that too much. I could have... the. Uh, spent time, for instance, pointing out some of the things that the Bible makes very, very clear. Crimes in the Bible, in the Old Testament, which sets out the, the, the pattern for our understanding, they're against individuals, not the state. The role of the criminal justice system was to mediate between individuals. And uh, in this country, that idea has steadily eroded for the criminal justice system, um, so that now um, virtually every criminal act is tried as a crime against society, or literally in the courts, against the Queen. There is a movement called restorative justice. I've given you some links to it in your your notes. To try to bring back that connection between people. And it's already demonstrated that victims feel much more satisfied by the criminal justice system if they are involved in dealing with the criminal and re-offenders as well, in certain studies at least, Reoffend much less when they're brought face to face with the person they wronged. Perhaps the Bible has something to say to us. I could have talked about uh, crimes against the fact that crimes against property were dealt with by restitution and compensation. That is, the uh, person um, got what had been stolen back and also an equal amount of compensation. I could have uh, uh, talked about uh, that there were no prisons in Israel. Very interesting observation. No prisons at all. Um, What does that mean for today when the only thing we seem to be doing is putting people in prison? Of course, one of the reasons why there were no prisons in uh, Israel was that there was the death sentence in Israel and and, uh, maybe there are good reasons for us finding other ways of dealing with people than the, the, than the death sentence. But another major reason why was because people paid for what they had done within the community still. So, um, uh, what about extensive use of community service for minor crimes? Do you know it costs... Uh, Uh, £38,000 a year to keep a prisoner in prison and it costs to to, to organise someone to do a whole year's community service if you want to measure it like that. It costs £2,000.
What about tagging? What about curfew orders? And so on. I could have talked about those, but I'm not going to. (coughs) I'm going to talk about this. I want to talk to you and to call you to be righteous. I want to explain what that means. Righteousness, particularly in the Old Testament, is um, the English translation of an interesting Hebrew word, tzedakah. And what we think of when we, when we think about righteousness is a law court. It's about legal righteousness. It's about obeying laws. But, but, but the word righteousness in the Old Testament is much, much richer than that. And one of its major overtones is relational. Okay? You are righteous if you are in a right relationship with people. You are righteous if you are in a right relationship with God. And justice in the Old Testament, another word, uh, uh, is, is about actively restoring righteousness. So if someone comes with justice, they are coming to actively deal with a situation so that righteousness is restored. Righteousness in the sense of restored, healthy relationships. It's an awful lot of sense of what, um, uh, for instance, we read just a little while ago in Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. The New Testament says that is an anticipation of Jesus. And yet when Jesus comes along, he does something really quite surprising. If, he's, if, he, if we're expecting him to fulfil that. He doesn't set up laws, he doesn't set up tribunals. He comes and cares for the poor and nurtures them. He, he, he embraces outcasts and brings them to himself. How is he bringing about justice or righteousness? He's doing it by restoring relationships. So I want to uh, call you to be righteous. First of all, to be righteous towards God. Because you see, the ultimate righteousness that Jesus achieved, Daniel's already alluded to. The ultimate restoration of relationship that Jesus achieved was through his death on the cross. Notice how Peter describes it. Christ died for sins 
once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He he was restoring that most fundamental relationship, our relationship with God, by paying the penalty for our sins in his death on the cross. And so, crucially, making us righteous because now we're right with God. There is no penalty to pay anymore. That's the the Old Testament understanding of what it means to be righteous and it gets taken up in the New Testament. Being right with God. If you're you're not yet a Christian here, then, then the Bible says this is your big issue. This is the big thing to get right. The fundamental, the foundational thing to get right. We need to be right with God. And we cannot do it through our own righteousness. We've we've destroyed our own unrighteousness. We've, we've, We've blotted our copybooks. We have made ourselves not right with God. We do it because Jesus actually dealt with that and then made us righteous, uniting us with God. That's not what's happened to you yet. That is your great need. We need to seek God's forgiveness. We need to ask that Jesus' death on the cross for sins was for my sins. We need to set off on a new path being right with God. Be righteous towards God. But this is the big thing I want to call you to. Be righteous towards others. See, we've already started to see being righteous towards others, uh, being righteous is relational. It's being, it's living like Jesus lived, caring for the poor. Jonathan Sachs, the chief rabbi in his book The Dignity of Difference, goes so far as to, to suggest that the meaning of that word tzedakah is compassion. And I'm very much indebted to uh, Tim Keller who came and spoke recently in Oxford for pointing out uh, to a group of us pastors this passage in Job 29 as a definition of righteousness. I rescued the poor who cried for help, the fatherless who had none to assist them, The man who was dying, bless me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. This is righteousness he's talking about. 
I was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame, I was a father to the needy, I took up the cause of the stranger, I broke the fangs of the wicked, snatched the victims from their teeth. To be righteous is to be compassionate. Some, some people think, well, righteousness is about obeying the law and compassion and mercy is a different thing. It's about going beyond the law in generosity and so on to, to, to other people. The Bible doesn't say that's going beyond the law. The Bible says that is the law. You have a duty, a biblical duty to be generous, to be compassionate, care for others. It's not a voluntary contribution you do in addition to your legal righteousness. It is essential to your righteousness. And it includes immediate help for people you come across. I rescued the poor. I was a father to the needy. The... Um, the, the um, uh, the widow's heart sang, says Job. And it involves working for more institu- to, to rectify more institutional wrongs. I broke the fangs of the wicked, says Job. All righteousness in the Bible hangs together. We cannot be righteous towards God. We cannot be right with God unless we are right with people. We cannot say that we've been obedient to God's law and righteous in that sense unless we've been compassionate and caring for the poor and the needy. It all hangs together. My big calling to you is, will you be righteous? Will you make sure that you are right with God? It is your most profound need to seek his forgiveness to avail yourself of Christ's death on the cross for your sins, to set out and follow Jesus. Will you be right with God? Will you be righteous towards other people? I do not mean simply obeying laws. I mean, will you allow your heart to go out to people? Will you especially favour the vulnerable and the weak and the marginalised? Those things are not separate. You cannot have one without the other. The reputation of Jesus in this country depends in part upon you. And people will not be impressed 
by simple clever words that persuade a few perhaps that it makes sense. They need to see it works. And this is a moment. This is a moment as, to be honest, all the political parties, one way or another, have lost their way. You only need to listen to them arguing about details rather than stretching out a big vision and you will see. They've lost their way because society has lost its way. This is a moment for Christians to stand up and say, there are whole continents of biblical truth out there in this book which will set you and society on a healthy path. We need people to mine the riches. But more than anything else, we need believers up and down the country who will live it, who will show it works. That is our calling. And if we live like that, and by the end of our lives, Jesus will be more glorified in this country. Will you be righteous?